Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I am here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. And today we are at Allegheny State Park. And what we're going to do, as we're going to do in the course of many future episodes, is give you the idea of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind it, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. And that's why we are at Allegheny State Park today. This is a large park right on the Pennsylvania border. <laughs> I get tired of walking up there. <laughs> I, I was impressed that you talked through that whole thing because I was getting winded and I wasn't talking at all. <laughs> all right, let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so this park is, as I said, right down near the Pennsylvania border. And we're actually here for two reasons. We're here to do this month's episode. But we're also prepping for a walk we're going to be leading we mentioned this last episode at an event called the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage in the first week in June. So, <laughs> all right, we gotta stop. <laughs> Let me catch my breath. So the trail we picked to hike today has quite a steep incline at the beginning. Yeah, a lot of trails tend to do that. <laughs> they do. Here. Well, we are in the Allegheny Hills. Right. Yeah. yeah. At the northern tip of the Appalachians, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. As I was saying, we are going to be here in a couple weeks actually leading our first hike as the field guides. Yeah. We're going to be doing a program called the Skeptical Naturalist. And as part of the Nature Pilgrimage, it's a whole weekend of natural history talks and hikes and programs. And if you're not familiar with it, if you just type in Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage, you'll find the website and find information out all about it. It's been here for, been going on for 60 years. It's always the first weekend after Memorial Day. So check it out. Yeah, I will say some of my most uh, impressive hikes that I've ever been on have been here at the pilgrimage, yeah. and I hope that we can live up to that. <laughs> I think Steve's a little nervous. Yeah, I'm not much of a, 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 you know, a group leader, you know? So. Well, I think it's going to be interesting because I'm hoping that some of our listeners will actually be making the pilgrimage to the pilgrimage. Yeah, I hope so. That'd be pretty cool. So let's tell people, let's give people an idea of what the woods looks like around us here. As we said, we are in the Allegheny Hills and we are in what looks like mostly second growth forest. There are some patches of old growth in mm -hmm. this park, uh, but right now we're seeing mostly second growth. They see some maples, they see some cherries. Some beech, some musclewood. Yeah. So this is a good spot to come and look for spring wildflowers. And that's actually the reason we are here today. So we are gonna be looking for one that is, I'm wondering if Steve's gonna argue with me about this, not a spring ephemeral. Oh, I, I don't think so. It's yeah. got a solid like four months of bloom time, so <laughs> all the way up until June about. Right, so I don't think you could count this as a spring ephemeral because it is not ephemeral. I will say, <laughs> spring does end in late June. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we are here, just to give you folks an idea, we are here in mid-May right now. So we are hearing the bird songs. Most of the migrants are back now. We're hearing the red-eyed vireo call in the background. Here I am. Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> so you could probably, hopefully you can hear that on mic. But we are here today looking for Jack in the Pulpit. Erisema trifilum. That's right. Now, do you want to get into the different varieties right now? or should, I think we should Let, just... Let's, let's hold up for a second. <laughs> but I want to say that there's a chance, albeit small, that if you stumbled across this plant, you may have thought it was a pitcher plant. That's true. Yeah. And I've had people in my own life, personally 
that thought that they came across pitcher plants, but it was actually Jack in the Pulpit. And you had to push up your glasses and say, yeah. Will, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I said that I was going to start. Steve and I were talking before we started recording, and I said I was going to start with a poem. Sure, yeah. yeah because I actually liked Steve started a few episodes ago, our Screech Owl episode. He started with a poem, and I thought that was really nice. <laughs> I've actually had a, a couple of people who've listened to it say that you uh, you turned them on to Ted Kuzer as a poet. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's, that's such good news. Nice job. I've been reading poetry for a while, but it was, um, I think Ted Kuzer was the first poetry book that I read where I actually decided to read it out loud instead of just like in my head to yeah. myself. And it was a totally different experience. So, uh, you know, definitely hearing someone read poetry is definitely a lot different than, you know, reading it silently. Reading yourself in your yeah. head, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start with this poem by Carrie Smith from 1856. Cue the music. Yeah. <laughs> Jack in the pulpit preaches today under the green trees just over the way. Squirrel and song sparrow high on their perch hear the sweet lily bells ringing to church. Come hear what his reverence rises to say in his painted pulpit this calm Sabbath day. Fair is the canopy over him seen, penciled by nature's hand, black, brown, and green. Green is his surplice, green are his bands, in his queer little pulpit a little priest stands. Offensive! <laughs> <laughs> Only in your sick mind. <laughs> so, that was good. Steve and I were, were talking on the drive down, and we actually said, no, no, we can't talk about this because we have to do it on mic. Uh, there's an interesting story we'll cover quick behind that poem. Because for this episode, you know, we like to use studies, but since we were looking at the general natural history of Jack in the Pulpit, we also do use uh, some field guides, some other natural history books. And two that I would recommend uh, is, well, one is The Book of Forest and Thicket by John Eastman, which we've mentioned a lot. And also The Book of Swamp and Bog. He has two different entries there. That's right. And then there's another book called The Secret of Wildflowers by Jack Sanders, uh, which is an excellent book. gives a lot of the, uh, the folklore, natural history of the plant. And I actually saw this poem in that book first, and it was credited to John Greenleaf Whittier. And he was a member of the, the Fireside Poets group, and that was a group of 19th century poets associated with New England. Sometimes uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's included in that. But what did you find researching Whittier and his connection to that poem? Yeah, so even though Whittier published that poem... In 1884, it was actually written previously in 1871 by Carrie Smith. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so when I started to look into the poem, I wanted to find a copy that I could just cut and paste into my notes. Yeah. I started to come across different authors. So I was able to track it down to what I felt was a reliable source. Mm -hmm. Carrie Smith, uh, who, if I remember correctly, did live in Massachusetts, her local historical society looked into it, and what they reported was that Someone, a friend of Whittier's, the famous poet, had shared it with him, but they didn't say who had written it. So when what he did is he took it, he edited it a little bit, uh-huh. um, changed a few lines, and then he published it. In that book, he said it was anonymous. Okay. But it was more or less over the years credited to him, but her friends recognized the poem, contacted him, and then in future editions, he did credit her with authorship of that poem but it's still been confused uh, as time has gone on and there's so many versions of that story oh my God. Yeah. that it's so confusing even right. though like bill and i even found some different things right and, and we still haven't really answered it's called jack in the pulpit <laughs> and the quote-unquote jack they just mean preacher by that now and I've... then he's in his canopied pulpit and that kind of gets into 
the identification of it, but we'll save the, the identification for just a second. Right. I saw a reference that Jack in England was just a common reference to guy or fellow. Right. But then I also heard that Jack may have been a reference to John G. Whittier. <laughs> Cause, oh. Because Jack is often a nickname for John. Yeah, but she wrote that poem in 1856. And then one of the stories I heard is that she sent some verses to him for notes, and then he published it. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's so confusing, because I'm like, if it's a reference to him, why did she, she wrote it, right? So yeah. <laughs> I, the whole thing's confusing, I guess. I don't know. It's a guy in the pulpit. I, <laughs> <laughs> but... All this aside, I'm impressed you're willing to spend so much time on Mike talking about this, because I know you're not a big fan of people, so... Yeah, but I like to make fun of common names, because I think that it's just a dumb common name, and really, Aww. it could be anything. So, We I could call know. it Steve in the pulpit. Let's call it Lucy in the psychiatric booth, or uh, George Michael in the banana stand. Oh, I love that one. Ripley in the power loader. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. Reference to Alien for people that don't know. So, or some other reference that only a few listeners will catch on to. <laughs> I love George Michael in the banana stand. That's from Arrested Development. We'll use it for the rest of the episode. Every time I see Jack in the pulpit from now on, that's what I'm going to think. <laughs> I just thought of another one. Okay. For a common name. Yeah. Totoro under the leaf umbrella. <laughs> Is that a, an anime reference? My neighbor Totoro. Come on, man. <laughs> oh, if yeah. you don't know Studio Ghibli or Hayao Miyazaki, get on it. <laughs> I do. I have seen that one, actually. All right. Let's get on to identification. Sure, yeah. Because I'm hoping most of our listeners at least have some idea of what Jack and the Pulpit looks like, but I'm sure there's people that don't. Yeah, maybe so. we should walk and talk about yeah, this one. because we are hoping to find it today. Yeah, so Jack and the Pulpit, uh, I just want to start off with this because I didn't know where else I could just throw it in there, but it's, an, it's a uh, solitary inflorescence, so it just has one inflorescence per plant. There's lots of little flowers there, but, um, but it's just one inflorescence. Yep. And like skunk cabbage, George Michael and the Banana Stand has <laughs> a spathe and spadix. So I think we got to talk a little bit about what that is. Yeah, so for a quick review, the spathe is a showy bract that looks like a curled leaf that's wrapped around the spadix, which is the spike of minute flowers that are densely packed around a fleshy stem, and many members of the Arum family have this. All right, so I'm going to try that, explain that a little more simply, if that's Go okay. Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> so it's a cup with a hood over the top, mm-hmm. and then there's a knob on the inside, a, a tall, skinny knob, kind of poking out from, uh, over the rim of the cup, and the canopy's over its head, and down at the base of that knob, and that knob is the spadix, mm-hmm. that's where you find the reproductive, uh, what most people would consider the flowers. Really, now, the whole thing is the, the flowering part, I, though. I don't want to make this even more complicated, but, and I know the spadix is sort of club-shaped, knob-shaped, but in skunk cabbage, it was much more bulbous. Yes. Whereas this one, it looks like one of those thin yellow wiffle bats. Yes! Like, it's not really... <laughs> It's not like bulbous or club-like. It's not right. like a caveman's club. It does It does look something like a wiffle bat. I like that analogy. That's good. All right, so I, and I just want to jump in to say um, this cup and this hood, it's about three to four inches tall, usually, although there is a lot of variability, especially when they're young, and it's about two inches across. And it's, it's called Jack in the Pulpit because in, you know, early churches, the pulpit would often be, you know, uh, topped with uh, a little awning. Yeah, and that was meant to help 
the preacher's voice project out into the audience. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So if you go into you know old churches, that's what you'll see. Now, I know the poem kind of did a decent job for us, but the spathe is usually striped green and purplish brown. And it's, there's some vari- there's some yeah. variability there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did we say that the spathe is the cup? You said it's a, a bract. Yeah. So the yeah. spathe is the thing that wraps around the spadix. Yeah. The cup. Yeah. And how with skunk cabbage, it comes to kind of a point above the spadix this one kind of it kind of flares out and then around the back it kind of flips over kind of like actually kind of like a pitcher plant it has that look to it but the flowers inside not on a separate stalk right and i think that's why people might confuse it with pitcher plant right because it does look somewhat pitcher like yeah for sure i would say the uh, jack in the pulpit it has a very graceful hood right and also with jack in the pulpit and other arums the thing that you would confuse for the pitcher is around the flower, where in pitcher plants, those pitchers are modified leaves right. that are on separate stalks. So and the flower's completely separate. Yeah. yeah. Oh, one other mental image. From the side, it kind of looks like a question mark with okay. that little awning. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That is so, a good way to describe it. Yeah, and we've given you guys so many analogies <laughs> and pictures that you can imagine that... I hope you have at least something in your mind that looks like Jack in the Pulpit. <laughs> now, now you're thoroughly confused. Well, at least the flowering part. Do you yeah. want to maybe move on to the leaves? Because the leaves are a huge identification part sure. of this. Yeah. And we'll talk a lot more about the flower later because it's interesting. It, it can actually um, change sex. Yeah. Uh, individual plants can one year send up a female flower, other years send up a male flower. Yeah, but the leaves, this is a compound leaf. So there are three leaflets. And each leaflet is about seven inches long and about three inches across. They're generally oval with a pointed tip, and the middle leaflet is generally larger than the, the two lateral leaflets. And the leaves, they can, once the plant really gets well established, the leaves can tower over the flower and often hide it. Oh, yeah. I've been hiking before where I come across Jack and the Pulpit leaves that are like up to three feet tall. Like these things are monsters. Oh, yeah. yeah. They can get real large. Now, have you ever had people confuse the leaves of Jack in the Pulpit with the leaves of Trillium? Oh, yeah. I, okay, do you want me to, to say why they're different? Yeah, go ahead. So in Trillium, all three leaves are evenly spaced. You mean leaflets? Yeah. <laughs> so all three leaflets are evenly spaced, whereas in Jack in the Pulpit, they're kind of squished to one side. So And it's usually facing away from the flower. Right, so let me say it because I was looking online and I found a a nice video that explained it very clearly. Okay. And they said, when you look at the leaflets, think of a clock face. And with Jack in the pulpit, you have the central leaf is pointing up at the 12, and then the two lateral leaflets are pointing at three and nine. Oh, okay. Whereas the trillium, they're evenly spaced around the clock face. So they're pointing to 12, four, and eight. eight. Yeah. Yeah. And then, did you have anything else to add? No. Because the one other field mark that the woman in this video pointed out was there on Jack and the Pulpit leaves, there is a vein that goes around the edge of the leaflet. It's got like an outline. Right. Yeah. And that is absent on Trillium. Yeah. So it does have veins within the leaf. Correct. But they only go so far. They don't go all the way to the end of the leaf. Right. Yeah. So you can look for that additional vein along the margin of the Jack and the Pulpit leaflets. Yeah. Yeah. So you can impress your friends at home. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's what the leaves and the flower look like. Oh, yeah, and before we move on, 
Did you see how long these guys can live? I saw 25 years. Yeah, 25 plus years. Yeah. I was going to say, I didn't really confirm that besides finding that on a USDA site. So it wasn't cited on their site, but I kind of trust them to not <laughs> put out, you know, you trust the flimsy information. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. But I'm not uh, a conspiracy theorist, Bill. I trust the government for the most part. <laughs> I, I think, I don't have it written down in my notes here, but I'm pretty sure I got that out of John Eastman. Uh, and I trust Mr. Eastman pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we talked about the flower. We talked about the leaves. Do we want to talk about what happens once it's pollinated? Oh, sure. Just what it looks like. Again, we're just going on description now. We'll get more into the reproductive process later. but Sure. Yeah, so... So it, some fungus gnats come in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they pollinate these little tiny flowers. So the flowers are very small, oh. similar to skunk cabbage. Right. But instead of where skunk cabbage has a bunch of flowers all clustered around the entire spadix, they're actually at the base of the spadix. Right, so if you lift up the hood, look inside, and mm -hmm. look down into the cup at the base, the male flowers look like... Oh, they're kind of wiry. I don't know. They look like threads. Yeah, threads. And yeah. that's... Those are the anthers carrying the pollen. It's still hard to tell them apart because you got to look really close. You do. Yeah. And then if it's a female flower, you're going to see what look like tiny little balls all clustered around the base of the spadix. Okay. Did you see that plants with male flowers tend to be smaller and plants with female flowers tend to be larger? I did. Now hang on. Trillium. Grandifolium. So yeah. trillium is still in flower. Oh, and there we have... It's pinking a bit. Yep. So the white trillium, as it ages, will often develop some uh, pinkish hue to its petals. But here, I mean, we can see on the leaves there, definitely evenly spaced. Yeah. And there's another trillium yeah. over here. So It's radial for sure. As yeah. we said, mid-May, trillium is still in flower here in the southern tier of New York State. We even had red trillium up top a little bit. Oh, yeah, there's some. And we have foam flower. Yeah. So red trillium has like a reddish-purple petals. Also known as Stinking Benjamin. Right. Although I've never been able to smell a bad smell coming from it. Oh, I'm actually really glad we saw this. Because I wanted to mention some of the other official common names oh, okay. of, of Jack in the Pulpit. Because, so, okay. We're going off track here because we sure. were talking about uh, once the flowers are pollinated, what happens. But I don't want to forget about that. Right, right, right. So let's talk about common names. That's fine. Got it. So I've heard a few, and I'm just going to list them off really quick. Yeah, I want to share some too. Bog onion. Yep. Marsh pepper. Brown dragon, dragon root, cuckoo pint. Cuckoo pint? Yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> okay. Starchwort, Indian turnip, wild turnip, and wake robin. But isn't I... wake robin a common name for red trillium, yes. right? I saw American wake robin. Okay. And it actually, the, the site that I was on, it referenced the fact that it got that common name because... The three leaves, maybe? No, wherever that local name came from... People felt it flowered when robins returned. Oh. And I think that's why red trillium, trillium is also referred to as wake robin. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And these are leeks. Okay. And also we got called leeks. ramps. So if you break them off a little bit. So you got to say your joke, Steve. Uh, Don't you wish you brought your skateboard? Yeah. <laughs> we were hiking last weekend. And I was like, man, I wish I would have brought my skateboard. And Bill just looks at me like I'm an idiot. Like, why would you bring your skateboard? I'm like, because all these ramps all over the place. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was so bad. You caught me off guard. <laughs> Usually you know when a joke's coming. That one, totally Did off not guard, even yeah. see it. So uh, leaks are also known as ramps, if you might be familiar with that, folks. The leaves are disappearing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and pretty soon the flowers will come out, so they get uh, a tall stalk, about 8 to 12 inches high, with a, a globe of white flowers. Uh, toothwort, we have common toothwort down here, a nice three-parted leaf. But None those flower. Those flowers are already gone as well. Yeah. Yeah, so oh, a lot of the spring ephemerals. Corn. It's either squirrel corn or dustman's breeches. Where? Oh, there's one leaf amidst all these. And a uh, finely bisected leaf, and we can't tell if it's squirrel corn or Dutchman's breeches without the flowers. And if you meet anyone that says they can, <laughs> be skeptical. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> All right, so we'll definitely talk about some of the other stuff we're seeing. Like, unfortunately, this garlic mustard here that's in flower. <laughs> Actually, there's a good amount of it's it. It's one of our invasives, <laughs> yeah. All right, so you were just talking about the differences between male and female plants. Yeah, I was saying something like the males tend to be smaller plants and the females tend to be larger plants. Right. Yeah. So I did actually find a reference in a study from 1982. Uh, This was in ecology, uh, and they studied 11 different populations. And they said that the female plant dry mass, their average size was 3.5 times greater than that of a male. Wow, okay. So, you know, definitely significant. That is. Yeah. And it makes sense that they're larger because it takes a lot more energy to go through the fruiting process. And if you have larger leaves, you're doing a little bit more photosynthesis. Yeah. Yeah. So the fruit of Jack in the Pulpit, it is bright red. And I've had people come across it with me in the woods before. And even if they're familiar with Jack in the Pulpit, if they're not familiar with the fruit, they're not going to make the connection because it stands out so much compared to the leaves and the flowering parts of the plants. So later in the summer into the fall, it develops this cluster of bright red berries. They just really pop on the forest floor. Oh, so I want to jump in here and say that I looked up some of the etymology for erisema. Yeah. And I found some conflicting stuff, but but, um, the first half of the word eris, erisema eris, that's just ancient Greek for arum. And the second half of the word is where I get some discrepancies and the first one I heard was Hema, Eres Hema. Blood, right. Blood. And that's referring to the blood red berries. And then the other one I found was Eris. And then the second word would be Sema, which is Greek, meaning sign, tomb, or grave. Oh. And I don't know the reference there. I tried to find something, but... Maybe it's referring to the fact that if you eat too much of this plant, you will die. <laughs> Yeah, it's the grave arum. And, you know, I kind of like that, though, because I know you just made that reference, but a second thing is that kind of like pitcher plants, and I know Eastman mentioned this, that's the only reason I'm going to say it, is that apparently they do tend to build up some insect debris, some dead bodies. Right. Yeah, in the base of the plant. Right. So it's not, it hasn't evolved to trap insects, but just the way the structure is, insects can get trapped inside. Yeah, so it's just a mistake, and it doesn't seem like it's getting nutrients from what right. it's trapping, yeah. but it just happens to be trapping stuff. Now, I, I do want to jump into, because I came across the fact that Sema referred to the red blotched leaf in some of the European species that are related to our species. Yeah, and I actually forgot to say that, because that's what I had for, I actually had two interpretations of Hema, the blood, and that is either the berries that are red or the red spots on the yeah. on the leaves. And yeah. then obviously the, the specific epithet Trifile. has to, <laughs> we're figuring, refers to the three, three leaflets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would make the most sense. Uh-huh. All right. So this species is generally found in uh, damp woods, swamps, bogs, floodplains. And you're going to find it, I saw, in every state east of the Rockies. Yes. It's, uh, I want to say, the entire eastern half of the U.S., as well as 
a little bit into southeastern Canada. Right. Yeah. And being a member of the Aram family, we did cover this in our skunk cabbage episode. Uh, did you know that Aram comes from the Arabic word for fire? Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. And that, we believe, is referring to the fact that many members of the Aram family contain calcium oxalate crystals. Including Lucy at the psychiatric stand. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> A.K.A. Jack of the Bowl. Jack of the Bowl. <laughs> so, again... If you want to find out more, we go into this more in depth in the skunk cabbage episode, but these are uh, microscopic crystals, sharp crystals. Pointed at both ends. Yep, and when you eat uh, the members of the family that contain it, uh, it burns, it leaves microscopic tears. Some people are extremely allergic to it, and it can actually cause swelling of the throat and the mouth uh, and actually cause suffocation. Now, that's very rare. Usually people are just left with... Um, that acrid burning but I've seen even collecting berries because people do use this plant for ornamental plantings many people recommend using gloves when you handle the berries yeah I read that too and actually I'm gonna jump back into people stuff again but I read that the Meskwaki Native American tribe weaponized jack-in-the-pulpit yeah <laughs> they added it to their meat and offered it to the Sioux Oh my God! And, uh, that apparently, and apparently, the Sioux died in agony, oh according God. to the source that I read. And every time I share one of these like anthropocentric things, I don't double check this stuff, guys, because I don't really care. But I thought it was kind of fun. It's biological weapons. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Some of the earliest biological warfare. <laughs> now, I did find one reference, and I wrote it down, and I added question marks and exclamation points to the end because it sounded so weird. Uh huh. You called this, like, starch root or something, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Well, that made this line pop into my head. A starch obtained from the roots is used as a stiffener for clothes. Interesting. Thinking, who goes to all this trouble? Like, if you can afford clothes that need to be stiffened, <laughs> can't you afford uh, an easier method for stiffening your clothes? Yeah, you got to get some nice tree-climbing pants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man. Uh, I don't know. So, there's... I was surprised. I always do uh, a quick check just to see if I can find any goofy or funny videos about edibility of this plant. Oh, sure. And it's surprising how many references there are on wild foods websites that basically just say, stay away from this guy. <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> and I don't really care how true it is, but I heard that if you dry it for three months, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't vet this one, but if you dry it for three months, it does become safe. Well, I can say yeah. that in my college days, I think I've made reference before, I was very into herbs and wild foods, and I actually have... Foot. Yeah. <laughs> I have harvested uh, the corm, that underground structure that Jack in the Pulpit grows from. I did harvest it. Uh, the source that I was using said to dry it for six months, which I did. Mm-hmm. And there is, you can find references on those wild food websites that Native Americans did dry it in that fashion. They would roast it and grind it up and it would be a cocoa-like flour. Yeah. They could make bread out of it. But if they didn't roast it, they would slice it up and it would almost be like uh, potato chips. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, I dried mine for six months. <laughs> I sliced it up. And it really didn't taste like much of anything other than what you would expect a dried up root that had been sitting for six months would taste like. Did you dip it in bison dip at least? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> but I will say that when I did eat it, there was no reaction. 
So okay. The, the calcium oxalate crystals had dried up at that point. Or that's your superpower, that they just don't affect oh, you. Oh, maybe. You never thought about that. Well, if we find a fresh one, should I try eating it? I think so. Right <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> I kind of regretted that I didn't eat any, try to eat any skunk cabbage. <laughs> I kind of thought at the end, oh, I should have tried well, to eat Well, you can something. make up for it here. All right, well, hang, hang on. We found something here. Alongside the trail, there is a little tiny plant. It's about three or four inches high. We have three sets of leaves with three leaflets each. And then there's a little cluster of white flowers coming from the top. Do you know this one, Steve? I was going to say, every now and then there is a, a fourth or a fourth and fifth ah, leaflet in there. A smaller one, yeah. So th is this one not, is it not Panax quinquifolia? Or what, what would what would it be? So this is Panax. This is dwarf ginseng. Is there even a quinquifolia? <laughs> I do have my field guide with me. Yeah, let's take a look. All right. Very good, Steve. You are very close. Ah. It's Panax quinquifolius. Quinquifolius. Yes. Okay. I guess I didn't agree with the male, female. <laughs> yeah. I even read a book on how you're supposed to name plants. I should have known that I was making a mistake. We forgive you. Right. <laughs> but you know what? Not every plant follows that rule. It is true. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, I know some botanists get their undies in a bundle or whatever <laughs> you say about that. They're always getting it. <laughs> so the more well-known species of ginseng is Panax trifolius. Okay. Yeah. Which I have never come across in the wild, have you? I thought I've seen just regular, yeah, like that's the ginseng. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That people, unfortunately, dig up and right. destroy local populations because they can sell it. Man, now it's going to seem like I'm so smart for pointing out that there's five leaflets. <laughs> I <laughs> promise, guys, that was a guess. <laughs> All right. All right, let's move on. Back to Jack and the Pope. <laughs> oh, you're going to get lots of guesses on our walk, so join us at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Now we're going to, uh, now if it's okay with you, Steve, I'd like to get into the different kinds of jack-in-the-pulpit. Oh, yeah, okay, so we're getting a little bit into taxonomy here. Yeah. But before we get into the species, uh, and I know we talked about the Aracee in the skunk cabbage episode, so I don't really want to get into it again so soon, um, but I think uh, I always like mentioning the Arum family has 121 genera and 3,770 species worldwide. Wow. And the genus Arisema has 197 species worldwide, making it the fourth largest genus in the Araceae. So, I mean, out of 121 genera, I mean, it's up there. Yeah. Yeah. And just specifically in New York, Bill and I have two Arisema species. We have Arisema dracontium, green dragon, which I saw everywhere we went when I was doing botany work in Illinois. It was just everywhere. And I think it's actually much more prevalent there than Jack in the Pulpit was. Have you ever seen it, Green Dragon, here in Western New York, though? So I know it's in New York, but I didn't look as to where in New York it is. Okay. Yeah. So it may be here. Yeah, I've never come across it. Yeah, er, but I I'd should... really like to find it and maybe uh... do a bonus episode on it or something because <laughs> it's a really cool-looking plant, and there's a lot of cool things to say about it. Cool in scare quotes. Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned the two species of Arisema we have here in New York. Now let's go down another level. <laughs> <laughs> go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah, because when I was, you know, learning local plants, I always thought that there was just one species of jack-in-the-pulpit. Yeah. And then someone at some point pointed out, take a minute and really look in your field guide, because jack-in-the-pulpit is so easy to identify. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think... 
whenever I came across it that everybody needed to refer to the field guide. Right. So if you saw any variation, you'd just be like, it's variation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a different species. So depending on who you're talking to, some people say there are different species. But for the research for this episode, it seems that botanists fall more on the side that there are actually subspecies. Right. So both Catalog of Life, who I put a lot of trust in, because I think they're fueled by the Kew Gardens and they seem to know what they're doing, as well as um, Flora of New York, all claim one species. And There are at least four subspecies. In Catalog of Life, I'm getting three mm -hmm. subspecies, but then in Flora of New York, they give another subspecies, right. which is just the common jack-in-the-pulpit, which catalog of life doesn't recognize i guess okay yeah so if you want to know I, we're going to talk a little bit about the subspecies sure but if the audience wants to know what some people refer to as the different species i would say look inside the newcomb's field guide uh, that hasn't been updated in a long time mm -hmm. they list three different species of erisema of jack in the pulpit but in the paragraph above the species breakdown nope oh, hang on we got a spring peeper hopping around. Hey! Oh, wait. No, it, are you it, sure? Is it a wood frog? It's a wood frog. It's not a spring peeper. He has a little black mask. Yeah, and he doesn't have the X on his back. That's right. His or her back. Yeah. All right. Don't step on. Yeah, I know. Okay. Where did it go? He's behind you. All right. It's over there. You're clear. Yeah. All right. So you were saying about the catalog of life? <laughs> yeah. Um, they had that there was three subspecies, Pusillum, Stewartsonii, and Quinidum. Quinetum? Quinatum. Quinatum. And they had six varieties and four forms. And I actually had to look up what forms were. They're just a rank below variety. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. But since Bill and I are in New York, I wanted to look on Flora of New York. And they recognize Jack in the Pulpit to have a few subspecies. And they do Pusillum. They do Stewartsonii. They're not ignoring Quinetum. It's just that that's a subspecies that's only found in the southeastern U.S., so it's right. just not going to be in New York anyway. Right. But then they do Erysema trophyllum subspecies trophyllum. Right. And that's the one that they call common jack in the pulpit that Catalog of Life doesn't recognize. And that's funny because the references I saw to Erysema trophyllum subspecies trophyllum, I saw it referenced as our most common subspecies, and it's believed to be a hybrid of Pusillum and Stewartsonii. So I do want to talk a little bit about it. I found a, a couple references uh, about chromosomes within these species. Did you come across that? No. Yeah, right. let's get into it. Uh, and actually, I found it on our friend Matt's website, In Defense of Plants. Oh, okay. He did an article on the Erysema complex and then had some references to other sources that I looked into. So the Pusillum and Stewartsonii subspecies, those are diploid. So they have 28 chromosomes, but... The subspecies Trifilum is tetraploid. Oh, okay. So it has 56 chromosomes. Four sets of each. Yeah, so I know you know this, but for the audience members that may not, the usual series of events that results in speciations of this type is that two species will cross-pollinate, and they usually produce sterile hybrids, right? Mm-hmm. But when there's an unlikely genetic accident, one or a few of these hybrids will develop twice the usual number of chromosomes and turn out to be fertile, Right. Yeah. Because each set of parental chromosomes has a compatible set. These fertile plants become new species and go on to evolve on their own. Now, some do argue that each of these subspecies should be treated as distinct species, right? 
Because they can't reproduce. Right. But all across their range, there are plants that, individual plants that seem to ride the fence between these subspecies. And I don't know if you came across any keys mm -hmm. trying to tell the differences between the four subspecies. Just in field guides, I didn't actually look in Gleason and Cronquist for this one. I looked in some studies that had little keys. Oh, okay, yeah. And I can't tell you how many times they used words like usually, often, <laughs> like the leaves right. will often be shaped like this. Right, that, I think that's uh, taxonomists using careful language because... In, in a lot of papers, you have, like, a confidence interval. Right. So, like, you can't just say everyone. Yeah. Right. So what needs to happen, and I'm surprised it really hasn't happened on a, a big level so far, is DNA analysis needs to be done. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, for most people, when you see Jack in the Pulpit, just calling it Jack in the Pulpit, Erisama trifilum, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think you need to split up too much, you know? some. It's good to know stuff Are you about a lumper? plants. No, no. <laughs> I'm just saying it depends on what you're into, you right. know? That's what I mean, yeah. Right. Like, I think it's it's fascinating to look at the genetics and see where these populations are occurring. Oh, and, sure. And, and how they're interacting with each other, but not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> not necessary to enjoy <laughs> right, George right. Michael and the banana stick. <laughs> <laughs> Ripley and the power loader. That's right. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about reproduction. Yeah. And why don't we walk a little bit? Yeah. And the rain kind of stopped a little bit, That's which it. is nice. And I think right now uh, Steve and I are lost. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, the trail we were on seemed to join a road. and. Uh, what a good place to be lost. Though. I know. <laughs> Worst things have happened to better people. I have a vague idea of where we are. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, in my notes here, I don't know about you, but um, I came up with a, a good abbreviation for this plant. Okay. I think from now on we should just call it J-Pole. <laughs> in my notes, because I hated writing out yes. Jack in the Pulpit, I wrote J in the P. That's and, what I did! Yeah, and then eventually I just started writing JP. <laughs> I like that too. Hey, look, JP. <laughs> All right, so we mentioned before, it rises from a perennial corn, and, and that's a food storage organ. The roots attach to it, and it, it may produce additional corns. Yeah. Right? Um, and this corn, it can be labeled bisexual because a male or a female may arise from it in any given year, depending on the amount of food that it has accumulated. Mm -hmm. So if food is ample, if the corn is doing really well, it's gonna send up two leaves. And remember, each of those leaves will have three leaflets. Mm -hmm. And then it will also send up a female flower. If less food is stored, it's gonna send up a male flower with just a single leaf. Mm -hmm. And then if the corn is starved, if it's really struggling, it's just going to send up a leaf. Yeah. Yeah. So when it does send up a flower, I think you came across this too, that this species has an abnormally long flowering period. Yeah, especially for arms in a temperate region, at least. And I think you yeah. mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the flowering period is... I came across 20 days. That number kept coming up a lot in different studies. Yeah, and I just saw, in general, its flowering time is March, April, May, and June. So. Yeah, but that's the flowering season. Right. Each individual flower can last for 20 days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I actually found a study that said that flowering time, it could have evolved secondarily as an adaptation to increase pollination efficiency because in temperate regions, the weather is highly variable. Yeah. So mm -hmm. they don't want to miss the window if there's a storm or there's a cold snap or something like that. Yeah, and 
I don't know if you got into this, but one of the studies that I read looked at temperature regulation to see if they're heating yeah. up, if they're doing thermoregulation. Thermogenesis, right? Thermogenesis. Turns out they're not really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't really have the energy stores to do it like skunk cabbage can. So it more or less fluctuates with daytime and nighttime temperature. Right. Yeah, so it's just using the natural heat of the day and the heat that builds up on the surface of the leaves. Yeah, because then... To really, <laughs> to really warm up and, and spread the... Uh, aromatic parts of the plant so it attracts insects yeah because in several accounts not in papers but you know just several species accounts it referred to the fact oh it's an arum so like skunk cabbage it's capable of thermogenesis yeah mine's a 2009 paper mother <laughs> 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 okay that's what i say <laughs> when you get into the literature all the references that i came across when they were reporting their results said well these temperature differences could have just been a result from normal heating and cooling daytime and nighttime temperatures. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so did you come across who the main pollinators are? Oh, you mentioned them. I, I mentioned some fungus gnats. Yeah, yeah. so Mycetophilidae. Yeah. Right? Uh, and then there's a secondary one, Cecidomiidae. And these are, these are two dipteran families, so okay. two families of flies. Yeah. And they seem to be the most frequent visitors. Mm -hmm. Now, I came across many references to the fact that on the base of the spathe, there is like a powder or a, at least a film that is supposed to mimic uh, fungus. Did you come across this? No, I didn't come across this. So I came across the fact that the insects will go down they're drawn by the odor okay and they will go down they'll be looking you know for fungus down there but they don't find it they bounce around in the bottom of the spathe get pollen on them and that in male flowers there's an exit hole oh and they're able then to eventually escape hopefully go off and pollinate another flower but that in female jack in the pulpit flowers there is not an escape hole and that is when the insects will sometimes get trapped and die Clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> a lot of references this episode. <laughs> and I did find several studies that kind of came right out and said uh, that atriphyllum relies on insects for cross-pollination. That it really doesn't happen without insects, so it's not going to self-fertilize. Usually the spadix only has male or female flowers. Right. Yeah. Usually. But <laughs> Whereas in skunk cabbage, they're perfect flowers. Right. So they can self-fertilize. So it would be virtually impossible for a jack-of-the-pulpit to pollinate itself. Virtually. <laughs> yeah, but we'll talk about bisexual flowers in a minute. Yeah. But I did want to talk about the insects for just a little bit longer. Sure. Um, I came across that in many studies, there's a very low visitation rate mm. that not many insects come. Even the fungus gnats that we were talking about just like one or less a day during the flowering period, which would make sense that it evolved such a long flowering period. Mm -hmm. Now, did you come across how springtails are involved with this plant? Columbula. Uh, no, I, I had read about some thrips that feed on the flowers, I, but not... I came across that too. Not, not the springtails. All right, so there was a, a cool study that I came across. This is from 2013. And... The study was actually looking, trying to look at what part of the spadix was involved in attracting insects. Mm -hmm. So they did three different treatments. 
and what they refer to as the finger-like spadix. So you down near the base of the spadix, you have... Let's call it what it is, a yeah. wiffle bat. Wiffle like, bat. Yeah. <laughs> down near the base, you have the reproductive parts. But then the upper part, like the upper two-thirds, they really just refer to it as the sterile part. And they were wondering which parts have to do with attracting insects. So what they did is they did an ablation. Do you know what that is? No. They just cut it off. So <laughs> they cut off Obliviate. that top third of the spadix in some of their samples. They removed the spadix tip in some of their samples. Mm -hmm. And then what they did was what was called a sham ablation. So if I read this correctly, okay. they took um, their cutting device and ran it up the length of the spadix pretending to cut it. And I don't know if I read that correctly, but they called they it a, homeopathic a, sh <laughs> a sham ablation. And then they set up sticky... Oh, it's a sham. Yeah. It all makes sense now. They set up small sticky traps inside the spathe to see who came. The truest scientist in the world. <laughs> so they said, pretend to cut. That's right. They said despite the treatment applied, the number of diptera was not affected. Okay. So the same number of the fungus gnats and that other family came. In contrast, ablation reduced the number of columbola to just 29% of the other two treatments. Oh, Okay. got it. So they went on to say that pollination in this species has previously been mainly attributed to fungus gnats uh, and thrips, which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. But their results suggest that columbola, and these are the springtails which do not fly, may play a role in pollination hmm. and it has something to do with that upper part of the spadix. Interesting. Yeah, but yeah. the flies don't seem influenced by it. Now, springtails, just looking into them a little more, did you know they're not officially insects? I, for, I forgot what they are. Yeah, so springtails belong to that subphylum hexapoda mm -hmm. and that refers to their six legs. Now, this group has the largest number of species of arthropods including insects, and it has three much smaller groups of wingless arthropods, which includes columbola, the springtails. Yeah. And those three orders are sometimes grouped together in a class called entonatha because they have internal mouth parts, unlike the other members that have external mouth parts. Man, I've never heard of that group before. No, Ento me Entonatha? Entonatha. And it does say sometimes they're grouped together. Sure, sure. So, but I saw many references, even here in the Northeast, saying that springtails are super common. I've only come across them a few times, usually late in the winter. Right. Yeah. In the insect surveys I was doing last year, yeah. we got so many of them, and they were really fun because they look kind of funny. Where were you doing them? In Illinois? Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, folks, that is just the, that's the only study that I saw that mentioned springtails as a pollinator of Jack of the Pulpit. So keep in mind that most studies really say gnat flies are really the major pollinators. And when I had mentioned thrips, I had said that they actually feed in the flowers. And I saw one study that was looking at them feeding on the leaves. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And by the way, thrips, tiny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were really fun to count, again, in those insect surveys. Even the fungus yeah. gnats are pretty small, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it really blew my mind how many wasps we'd collect. 
because these are these are species that you couldn't see with the naked eye but when you're under a microscope you're like oh look at all these wasps everywhere <laughs> and they're so tiny yeah just it's amazing i'd love to do a few insect sweeps around here and just collect a bunch see who's around yeah, yeah. there's so much going on we're not seeing some of them keep trying to fly in my eyes right now <laughs> so <laughs> i'm seeing some of them <laughs> all right so where are we going to go next you know, I will bring this up now. It's not something we can really stay on for too long. Yeah. But we've already talked about people eating them, and we talked about who pollinates them, and then who eats the flowers and the leaves. Um, I also just want to quickly mention that in terms of the species that eat the berries, you know, the <laughs> seed dispersers, yeah. um, ring-necked pheasants, turkeys, wood thrushes. But I guess I read it's not like a great wildlife food. Yeah, most of the references I saw said not a lot of things eat it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was surprised. All of these podcasts that we've done when we're looking at who eats what, ruffed grouse show up on almost every <laughs> list. It's like, they'll eat anything. Right. They won't even eat Jack in the Pulpit. <laughs> even they won't eat Jack in the Pulpit. Yeah, but the pheasants will do it and turkeys will do it. Yeah, but the ring-necked pheasant, not the ruffed grouse. Right. Which is also They're in the same pheasant. family, yeah. That's right. Um, and, and I don't know... Did we say this directly? That the calcium oxalate crystals, they're found in the leaves, the corms, and the fruits. Right. I don't they're think we said that. They're also in the fruits. Yeah, in yes. every part of the plant. Yeah. Good story about those berries. I just remembered it. Mm-hmm. So I used to work at, uh, at Beaver Meadow. We've done a couple episodes there. And we would often have uh, volunteer walks where we'd take the volunteers on a hike. And people would just kind of be sharing stories of what they know about the plants and animals around. And... You know, it's mostly retired folks, and on one particular walk, I'll never forget it, one of the guys who was kind of a jokester, he saw some jack-in-the-pulpit berries, picked a couple of them, gave them to one of the women, and said, oh, try these, they're really good. Now, I didn't see this going on, so she pops them in her mouth, and she starts chewing them up, and doesn't really have a reaction, but she said as soon as she opened her mouth and took a breath, she said it was like, she had had the hottest pepper she had ever had in her wow. life. Just her mouth was on fire. And uh, she didn't speak to that guy for quite a while after that. Because <laughs> she died. <laughs> no, no, she's still alive. But uh, I had to have a, a sit down uh, with that with fella the, yeah. <laughs> and talk to him about what not to do with Jack yeah, and the with this clown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is this a good spot to talk about? Um, let's, let's talk about differences in male and female flowers. Now, do you mean you want to get into the gender difficile, the sex change that some of these plants will do, some of these individuals will do? Not yet. Okay. Because I came across a study looking at sex and gender dynamics, and it was trying to look at what determines how well the plants are doing. So what goes into that probably. Okay. So they looked at different sites, and they looked at environmental factors. One thing they did find is that females prefer sunnier sites with higher pH Basic, alkaline. Yeah. Right. So more alkaline soils. Sure. Thanks for jumping in there. <laughs> and when they talk about higher soil nutrient levels, it's not as clear cut as that. There is, it is more complicated than it sounds. And, and I'll get into that. So they said males were concentrated in darker microsites with lower pH. But when they looked at things like soil moisture, they said the places that had wetter soils were more male dominated. Okay. And they said if nutrient availability were a major determinant, one might expect superior growth in more female-based ratios at sites with higher nutrient availability. Always, right? Okay. Okay. 
But what they found is that there was one site, if it had high soil moisture levels, it was male dominated. And they hypothesized that the moisture levels may have been so high that it inhibited respiration and nutrient ion uptake into the roots. Okay. Yeah. So it's complicated. It's not so simple uh, as we might like it to be. But it did seem that light intensity did play a big role. And then there were also certain soil nutrients that seemed to favor uh, female-dominated populations more than male. So the higher the moisture levels, the more this plant was struggling to fruit. Got it. Because remember, we talked about how it's just going to send up a male flower if it's doing okay. Yeah, and if it's doing real good, yeah, it'll do the females. You mean real well. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Plants do good work. <laughs> they don't do well work. Okay. <laughs> Actually, a little bit. Yeah. Drop some moisture. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the bisexuality of the plant. Sure. And uh, why don't we do this on the move? We've kind of stopped again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, let's move. All right, so I think it might be a good idea if we describe some botanical terms, even if we do kind of like a simplistic uh, <laughs> explanation of what they mean. Yeah, no, I think it's a good idea because we're going to be tossing around some terms. Yeah. So a perfect flower is a flower that's bisexual. It has male and female organs on the exact same flower. And when a flower only has male or female organs, it's considered imperfect. We're going to go one level deeper. <laughs> so when a species... So we were talking about flowers before, now we're jumping to the species level. When a species has only imperfect male or only imperfect female flowers on an individual plant, it's called dioecious. And so you need two plants... Yep. To reproduce. Yes. One's producing the pollen, one's going to receive the pollen and then produce the fruit. Yeah. And if a species has imperfect male and imperfect female flowers on the same plant, it's called monoecious. All right. So for dioecious, think of, shout out to staghorn sumac episode. Okay, um, yeah. Certain staghorn sumac stands are female. They're the ones that produce the fruit. Certain stands are male. They're just producing pollen. Mm-hmm. But then you have other plants, what you're calling monoecious, mm -hmm. and on one plant, they'll have some flowers that are male, some flowers that are female. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now that we have a foothold on plant sexes, we're going to make things even more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so members of the Arisama genus exhibit gender difficy or sex change, where individual plants produce either male, male and female, so monoecious, or just female inflorescences, depending on their size and nutrient availability. Now, just to keep everybody's head straight, before we talked about how the plant will send up a male flower or a female flower, depending on how well it's doing, how much energy it has stored. Yeah. So just to be clear, normally it will send up a male dioecious flower mm -hmm. that that pollen's going to have to be carried to a separate female flower. Or it sends up a female dioecious flower that's going to be expecting to receive the pollen. But you're saying there's a third case where... Sometimes they have male imperfect flowers and female imperfect flowers in the same inflorescence. So they're not perfect flowers. They're still imperfect flowers, but they're in the same grouping at the base of the spadix. So you lift up that hood... You look down, 
you're going to see some flowers that are male, some flowers that are female. Yeah. Yes. So they so, don't have their male and female parts together in a single flower. Yeah. And we right. don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much because we're talking about the entire genus right now. We're not talking about Jack in the Pulpit specifically. Okay. Yeah. So in this genus, in Arisema, there are three basic sex change patterns. And not every species will have all three of these sex change patterns. You know, some species will have one, some species will have another, some species will have a mix of some of them. So a type one sex change pattern would be when a species changes between having a male inflorescence and having a male and female together in their inflorescence or being monoecious. All right, so let me just stop you. Are you yeah. talking about just jack in the pulpit or all arums or some arums? Or... No, so I'm trying to establish that the Arisema genus has this property that it does these sex changes. And we'll get uh. specific into jack in the pulpit in the results of the study that I read. Okay, all yeah. right, so we're talking about plants within the genus Arisema, not all arums. Yeah. Uh-huh. But these close relatives of Jack in the Pulpit. Yeah, so a lot of people have Green Dragon in their area, a lot of people have Jack in the Pulpit, so, you know, and, and these are actually the two biggest species in the study that I was reading. Okay, and so let's back up a little bit. Just yeah. So you said the first sex type is... Type when? 1. Okay. Where it goes from male to male and female in the inflorescence. Okay. And type 2 is when a species changes from all male to monoecious, so male and female, both sexes. Yep, to all female. And these changes occur between flowering seasons, right? Yeah. Like the so first these... one, it's one year. The second one, it's the next year. So these individuals have are being looked at among various years. Okay. Yeah, so it's the same individual, and it's doing different things in different years. Right. So a male Arisema species is male one year, and that exact same plant might be female the next, or right. it might be monoecious the next. The corn is going to send, corn is going to send up a different sex. Yeah. Okay. And then type three is where a species changes from an all-male inflorescence one year to an all-female inflorescence the next year. So the study that I was looking at took place in southern Indiana, so these populations may be different than populations in other states, or even within that state. Maybe uh, populations in northern Indiana might be a little bit different. But they observed 30,000 plants from 12 Arisema species, and they looked at these plants over three years. Wow. But the majority were green dragon and jack in the pulpit. So all populations studied either conformed to the type 1 or type 3 pattern of sex change, meaning that they either switched between male and monoecious or male and female. And specifically, green dragon was a type 1 species. So it was going between male and then the next year it would be male and female. Whereas Jack in the Pulpit, in this study, was switching between male and female specifically. Yeah, I was going to jump in here because mm -hmm. I found several studies that when they referenced these bisexual flowers, they said that the percentage of these in populations were significant but small. So we were okay. talking about like 10, the numbers I saw in the various studies ran between like 10 and 15%. Okay. That most of the flowers in any given jack-in-the-pulpit population were either male or they were female. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know I just jumped in with Green Dragon all of a sudden, but uh, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm trying to prime you guys in case maybe we do an episode in the future covering <laughs> that one because I'd love to hunt it down. It's a really cool plant, and if you haven't seen it, 
It's super cool looking. So you're trying so. to confuse them now. <laughs> yeah. And maybe we'll clear it up later sometime. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> Green Dragon, it's got a cool name, and it's a super cool looking plant. It so, is a cool uh, name. So if you're not familiar with it, maybe go Google a picture or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I just talked about the whole genus, and then I compared Green Dragon and Jack in the Pulpit. So um, you had something about the flowers? Yeah, so we've been talking about how within Arisema you can have male flowers, female flowers, you can have flowers with both parts. Yeah, and I want to say that in my study I know I was saying that Jack in the Pulpit tended to be either all male or all female, but of course these were just, there are many individuals, but these were just a population within one part of one state. Right. So you're going to get other populations that will be more monoecious potentially. Well, like I said just a minute or two ago, I looked at different studies that three or four, at least, that said the occurrence of an inflorescence with male and female parts was low but significant still. Yeah. But I did look at one specific study that I want to talk about now, and this was from 2010 in plant biology. And what they found, at least in this study looking at populations in Quebec, was that male bisexual plants produce only pollen and female bisexual plants produce only fruit which is confusing because when you're thinking of a bisexual flower right you're thinking it's got <laughs> both parts and both parts are active so but, but i it, guess not what it seemed to be saying is if you had one flower with with both parts it was either going to have just the male parts doing their job while the female parts were inactive or the opposite where the female parts were doing their job, producing fruit, receiving pollen, and the male parts were inactive. So the study went on to say that this plant, they felt, is truly a dioecious plant. That really, for practical purposes, flowers are either male or they're female. That's their functional role. Because even when they're both male and female, they're still only functionally one or the other. Right, and they went on to give the example that they looked at these female bisexual plants where they had male and female parts but the female parts were the ones that were active and they were equivalent to female plants in terms of how much insects visited them uh, how much they're fruiting how much fruit they produce uh, the berries and seeds everything was the same you really couldn't tell the difference between wow so a female flower versus a functionally female flower are the same yeah Wow. Wow. Indistinguishable, I should say. (laughs) I'm hoping that, folks, I'm hoping you guys out there were able to follow all that. I I know that was pretty technical. (laughs) I was barely hanging on. (laughs) But if any of you out there were listening and we got something wrong within that, please let us know. Right. Please, because we want to know when we're wrong or if we're misunderstanding something. But just to summarize, I guess what, what I was saying is that many members of the Arisema genus do something called sex change throughout the years. Yeah. And specifically, Jack in the Pulpit switches, at least in the study that I read, from all male to all female. Right. And what you were saying was that even when the flowers have both male and female parts, they're still functionally just one or the other. Right. So I think that's a pretty decent summary. Yeah, I think uh, so. A five-second summary of something that it took us 20 minutes to say. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right, though. Yeah. <laughs> Now, do you know? Do we go this way or that way? I'm not sure. I think we go this way. Yeah, I think so too. 
<laughs> Whoops. This We're episode lost. may never be public. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. So do you have anything else? Well, there's one more thing. I'd like to find some Jack in the Pulpit, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we didn't do that. <laughs> uh, we've been walking along this trail, and while we've seen lots of stuff growing, we have not found Jack in the Pulpit. So we are going to head off trail a little bit and hunt for some Jack in the Pulpit and see if we can find it. But we're in tick territory, Bill. <laughs> it's all right, Steve. You'll be okay. I'll give you a, a, a thorough search later. <laughs> <laughs> Don't promise that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, guys, now, I know it doesn't sound like it, but Bill and I are covered in ticks. We, we actually a... just backed up 10 feet from the plant so we could walk up to it on mic. Uh, but we came across one, and I'm surprised how hard it was just to come across this one plant, because normally the place is lousy with Jack in the Pulpit. Well, as you pointed out, this is a relatively open woods that we're in. Yeah. We're, we're walking along a woods road here. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're walking along a nice break in the trees. Yeah. yeah. Although we, we were off path a bit. We did. We were. So we did find one here. Now let's describe what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. I think we're actually looking at more than one plant. Yes. Uh, they're probably developing off the same corn. So we have a feet. Well, it looks like a female flower because mm -hmm. we have the spathe, that floral leaf, and then we have two leaves coming off of it. I'd say the whole plant is what, about 12 inches off the ground? Yeah, I was going to say about a foot. Yep. Yeah. But then next to it, we do have one leaf and then a few inches away another leaf mm -hmm. so these might have been corms that developed from the initial corm yeah and there's another leaf there okay so i'm going to open up the canopy here and i'm looking yeah. in there's it's striped green and purple on the inside it's kind of really nice looking so the yeah. underside of that flap underside of that canopy that uh awning it's a very dark yeah. purple, and the green is just like lighting up, like yeah. these little streaks of green. Did you come across in your research, There, I saw a reference to, uh, I didn't know, Georgia O'Keeffe, the famous painter, did a beautiful Jack in the Pulpit uh, a series. Well, O'Keeffe, she liked flowers a whole yeah, lot. Yeah. yeah. All right, so I'm going to... Oh, and by the way, I just want to mention this because I mentioned it about uh, skunk cabbage. We're looking at a plant right now that's a monocot. And when I look at these leaves, I don't really think monocot because it almost looks like there's like a bit of a net veination on the leaf. And it always blows my mind to think that this group are monocots. Yeah. Yeah, it's so weird. I and I got to keep reminding that. myself of that <laughs> because I don't think about it enough because it's not, it's just not something you think about with, with these guys. And take a look at the leaf. We can see that vein oh running along the margin of each of the leaflets. Mm -hmm. So you can really see it there. In addition to the veins coming off the central midrib yeah and you can see it on all sizes so even the small leaves they yeah. have that outline they just always have it now in the spathe there's an overlap and i'm going to try to pull that apart i don't want to damage the plant but i'm trying to see if this is a male or a female flower and sometimes the spathe isn't as dark as this one yes but this one's a very very dark purple spathe and um so what oh, do you is think? this a female? This looks like a female. I don't see any threads. It just looks like a cluster of small berries down at the bottom. Yeah, that's what it looks like. So this looks like a female flower. And it's funny. It almost... So I was describing this like a bat before. Yeah. It's almost like a really, really elongated mushroom because it kind of cuts back in and then goes down and then you get the female flower. You're talking about the spadix. Yeah, the spadix. Right. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It almost is like... Or like an, a closed umbrella. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more like a closed umbrella. And the, I, I love my wiffle bat analogy, <laughs> but the clo 
exposed umbrella is much better. Yeah, and the female parts are clustered around the, the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. I'm glad we found it. Yeah. Yeah, this was good. Yeah, that would have been disappointing. Yeah. An episode on a plant that's relatively easy to find, and then we don't find it. <laughs> now, I don't know if I should bring this up, but should I eat part of it? <laughs> I don't think so. Unless you, unless you really want to. I don't know. I mean, for science? I think you mean for entertainment. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm going to take a very small piece. Okay, he's, he's eating the tip of a leaf. This is where we're going to see if you have that superpower. Now, someone did say in one website I came across that it takes about 10 minutes. Oh, this will be great then. Because we have to do our wrap-up. And maybe during the wrap-up you'll start noticing. Maybe. Because right now I'm not getting anything. Doesn't really even really taste like anything. Well, that was anticlimactic. <laughs> All right, we'll see. I'll keep you posted as, as uh, we move along here. All right. My tongue oh. is, it's a little tingly. <laughs> I may be starting to feel something. All right. All right, so let's wrap up. <laughs> let's see how long I, go right, I make it for. So I hope you enjoyed Bill eating a Jack in the Pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, which one do you want to call it? If you're eating it, you're eating a George Michael in a banana stand. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. <laughs> That's wrong on many levels. <laughs> I'm going with Jack in the Pulpit. Okay. All right. All right. So first and foremost, we would like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. Yeah. We're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we give a special thanks to our top patrons. Rob, we named the dog Indy. Bethany, and especially Ken, Diane, Morgan, Alyssa, Mountain Misery Farms, Elizabeth, and Daniel. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. We also want to thank our new anonymous five-star reviewers. We got a lot of five-star reviews this month, so thanks, guys. All right. Yeah. I'm getting more anonymous lately. I don't know. <laughs> Less people to thank in person. <laughs> and it seems like every episode, we gain another unofficial accolade. Oh, from some website or <laughs> yeah. blog or something? Yeah. So I recently stumbled across the field guides in an article titled The Best Lesser Known Outdoor Podcasts of 2018 on OutwardBound.org. Oh, nice. Yeah. Outward Bound is a U.S. organization that helps people of all ages build character through high-impact activities in wilderness settings. Annually, they get about 35,000 students on wilderness expeditionary courses, so it's not a small operation. No, I had some friends do it just out of college. They took long trips to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, seriously? You know this group? I do. I do, yeah. A friend cool. took a three-month trip where he learned backpacking, sailing, and rock climbing all over the course of three months. That's awesome. Yeah, it was very, very cool. And as always, links in the description. So, we were also mentioned on thegumbootchronicles.com. We were mentioned as one of the author's favorite podcasts. Yeah. We were among the ranks of In Defense of Plants, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, This Week in Science, and This Podcast Will Kill You. So, I don't know, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. <laughs> and just for some more information, The Gumboot Chronicles is a blog and photography website run by Fiona. Uh, and then in quotes here, in between her fascination with the natural world, she spends much of her time studying plant science at the University of Tasmania, Australia, hanging out with her husband and kids, martial arts, and generally getting sidetracked with the latest obsession that caught her fancy. And yes, I did lazily read a quote from her website, but definitely go check out Fiona's photos. <laughs> Link in the description. 
Thank you, Fiona. I also noticed that a blog titled Tales from the Field mentioned us in their Fun Biology Resources section. And just as a free shout-out for them, Tales from the Field is a blog, comic, photography, rant collection about some of the interesting aspects and experiences of field biology. And, again... Links in the description. <laughs> and if you guys know of any other shout-outs that we haven't found ourselves, please let us know so we can give them a shout-out in return. Because we all need to help each other out. That's right. And uh, learning about nature and science is a good thing. <laughs> At least we think so. And along those lines, we want to give uh, a thank you to one of our listeners, Monica, who after our skunk cabbage episode, in which we gave the audience a lot of homework, there were a lot of questions that we said, <laughs> hey guys out there, if you know... Monica spent a lot of time looking up some answers for us. Uh, we posted them in the comments section of that episode on our website, thefieldguidespodcast.com. So check that out. And thank you, Monica, for taking the time to do that and share that with everybody. Yeah, so like Monica, if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. You can also follow us and like us on Facebook. Uh, you can tweet at us at Field Guides Pod or check out our Instagram feed at the Field Guides Podcast. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the Field Guides. But if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help us out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher. It really helps the word get out to more people. You can also leave a review on whatever podcast. Yeah. Catcher you use. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, guys. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. And a final update. No burning in my mouth, but I do have a slight tingling on the tip of my tongue, so maybe I just got a few of those crystals. But thanks, too, for me, folks. We'll see you next month. And maybe we'll see you in person. At the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. All right, bye, guys. Ooh, ooh. I just thought of another um, another name for Jack in the Pulpit. Yeah. A ch- in the me d- Bill, we can't <laughs> say any of that. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs>